Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer on episode 219 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to open this show with a cartoon joke from Jason Love. I want you to picture a couple on a first date, sitting in a cafe or a bar, whatever your preference is, wherever you'd have a first date. The woman asks, so what do you do? The guy replies, I'm a writer. The woman says, sorry, I meant, what do you do for money? I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hello! How are you? More importantly, how is your speaking coming on? Is there anything specific you're struggling with? Do you have any questions about storytelling or using humour in your talks? Or maybe you have some questions about structure, or perhaps you're curious about where to start speaking. But this is your show. So if you do have questions or specific things that you'd like me to cover, then send me an email at sarah at saraharcher.co.uk and let me know. And just to be clear, no question is too simple to ask because chances are if you're thinking it, then others are too. And I'm here for you. Okie dokie. But let's talk about today's show. In my speaking club membership, I have authors who are working on talks for their books and speakers who are wanting to write or who are writing a book. How about you? Have you got a story to tell? Do you have a big message to share? Maybe you should consider writing a book. Because just like a great talk, a book is a fantastic way to bring that message or story alive for people in a way that you can scale, as long as it's done in the right way. But there are many potential traps waiting to slow you down or stop you from getting the book finished and out into the world. And that's where this show can help. Having written two business books myself... I know how challenging the journey can be to get to the finish line and get the book out into the world. And I wish that I'd known this lady before I got started. Because my guest today is Anne-Marie Winkle, and she's an author and founder of Begin a Book. Her desire to become an author was born when she had an epiphany about her life with a toilet brush in her hand. Unfortunately, Her journey was fraught with obstacles to overcome, but she didn't give up and eventually she held her first book in her hands. And she's never been the same since. And today, through her company, Beginner Book, she makes the book creation process stress-free and easy for other aspiring authors. And in this show, she'll be sharing how to avoid the pitfalls of publishing And she'll also be giving you some brilliant advice to make sure your book has the best chance of reaching the people who need to read it. 
Right then, let's switch over to the interview. Welcome to the Speaking Club, Anne-Marie Winkle. Hello. <laughs> Hello. You've been a little bit under the weather, haven't you? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, last couple of weeks. Yeah, so it's still, traces of it are still there, but... <laughs> it's all good fun. So we haven't necessarily got the silky tones that you normally have. <laughs> you haven't, but I'm thinking that this adds an extra dimension and interest and intrigue. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Get that sort of horsey, sultry <laughs> thing going yeah. on. Excellent. Okay, Definitely. cool. So, well, listen, thank you for coming on the show. I'm, I'm really interested to chat to you today. We've been knocking around the same networks for a little while and you have a similar sort of thing that you do, but different in terms of you're all about getting people's stories out as well. But uh, let's unfold this mystery as we go. So first of all, one of the things that when I was doing a bit of research on you, I came across something which you'd actually um, put a little C for copyright beside, which I thought was really fun, um, was a toilet brush moment. And yeah. I think I call it something different, but I think we it's the same thing. But I want you to tell me what you mean by a toilet brush moment and yeah. what yours was. Okay, so the toilet brush moment is that point in your life when you, I mean, for me, it was a realisation that there has to be more to life than this. That, you know, when you're kind of, you get to that point when you think, I feel like I'm heading in the wrong direction. It's like a moment of realisation, really. Um, and I think we all have them from time to time. Mine is, mine is called a toilet brush moment because, and this is no word of a lie. So with lots of things that have happened to me kind of in my life, I've had to work in lots of different industries and do lots of different things. And this is about, it's got to be over 12 years ago now. I was um, working in a school and one of my jobs was to clean the girls' toilets. And I was in the girls' toilets doing what you do when you clean them. My sister is a very high up occupational therapist. She's, you know, she's always done it. It's what she's kind of, she went to university. She's got a master's, you know, she's kind of, you know. So the difference between us at that point was quite marked in terms of where we were. Anyway, this was when um, David Cameron and Nick Clegg came into power and formed the coalition government. And so I'm in this toilet and my phone beeped and I thought, gosh, I better just check that just in case it's an emergency or something. So I came out of the toilet and in my right hand, I still held the toilet brush. And in my left hand, I grabbed my phone to check the message. And it was a message from my sister. And it said, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was something along the lines of, I've just met the Prime Minister and I'm going to be on television. And I'm standing in this little girl's toilets in the local school with a toilet brush in my hand. And that's why it's called the toilet brush moment, because for me, the, the kind of the, just the difference between where she was and where I was was so pronounced at that point. And that's not because I'm kind of saying there's anything wrong with being a cleaner or cleaning toilets or anything like that. Of course there isn't. But it was just, hang on a second, you know, there's my sister kind of up here doing this. And there's me with a toilet brush in my hand. And that was my moment when I went, OK, there has to be more to life than this. And that's kind of where the journey started. So tell me, how did you get to there? What, what were you 
planning to do when you were younger was what was your how did your paths diverge if that makes sense yeah so I never knew what I wanted to do I was going to be a ballerina I was going to be a gymnast then I was going to be a secretary then I thought I might be a speech therapist and then I was going to be a barrister so clearly I had no idea what I was going to do I got a place at law school but by the time I was 18 I'd had enough and I just wanted to kind of get out and work so I went into insurance because insurance was kind of legal and it sounded quite interesting so that's what I did as I said obviously my sister knew what she was going to do so she went off and she kind of did all her qualifications and everything then I worked my way up in insurance and I actually um, ended up in a really good job working as a surveyor so looking at risk management risk control all of these kinds of things loved every minute of it brilliant job and um, then I fell pregnant with my first child so the the idea was that I was going to sort of have a year or whatever and then go back to work. But because I had always had my mum at home, it became quite important to me that that was something that I was able to offer my son as well. So I decided that, OK, I'll, I'll stay at home with him until he goes to school and then I'll go back to work. Um, so in that intervening period, uh, we had a second son. And he, when he was seven weeks old, unfortunately, he got um, very sick and went into hospital. And from that day on, we knew he was going to have challenges and he was going to be severely disabled. So my kind of three or four years at home, if you like, before going back to my career, turned into 15 years at home because I had to be his carer. You know, I had to take him to all the hospital appointments, uh, doctor's appointments, all of the different things that came with, with his needs. Plus, you know, kind of the, the few blue light dashes, which are always um, which are always good fun. So this meant that I wasn't able to go back to my full time career. So I had to do something that fit around my husband's working hours and, you know, the childcare needs. So this is how I ended up cleaning. And I've cleaned, you name it, I've cleaned it. I've cleaned posh houses from top to bottom. I've cleaned more toilets than I would like to think. So because, you know, it's, it's the kind of job that you can be very flexible with your hours and that, and that was what I needed. So, yeah, so that's how we ended up being in two very different places, um, even though we kind of started off at the same point. Thank you for sharing that. That's really interesting in terms of, of how you got there and how what life throws at us that can just completely knock us off course or put us onto the right path. So it depends <laughs> yeah. which way you look at it, really. So they had that moment, as you said, you, you've cleaned more toilets than you can shake a toilet brush at. So uh, you, what happened next? What did you think in that moment? It's really mixed because I felt really sad. I felt cheated, actually, and I felt angry because, because of my circumstances, I hadn't been able to progress the career that I had initially wanted to progress. And so there was a huge range of emotions there that this is just ridiculous, you know, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want this to be where I end up for, for the rest of my life. So it was a really, it was a defining moment. I mean, it was funny. You know, I, I laugh about it now and, and that's why I kind of have a bit of fun with it on the website because it is funny and it's great to say to people, oh, what's your toilet brush moment? And they're like, okay, she's kind of lost the plot, which is probably true. But at the same time, it was that realisation that, there needs to be a change here 
for me as a person, as a woman, not, you know, when you become a mum, you absolutely give your life over to your children. And that's all part of the understanding and, and kind of part of the deal, if you like. And you don't become, I'm not Anne-Marie, I'm, you know, my son's mum. And nobody knows your name, actually, because you're just so-and-so's mum. And that's fine for a certain amount of time. And I think, you know, when, when you have children, you kind of enter into it, knowing and understanding and expecting that there will come a point where they live their own independent lives and you can start to be yourself again. Um, but I massively lost my identity. I had no idea who I was. Um, I'm not entirely sure I still do now. But, you know, I kind of, I felt in that moment, I felt that really keenly that I don't know who I am. I am just that mum that has that disabled child that takes him here, there and everywhere and rushes off to hospital every five minutes and can't live a normal life. You know, I say normal, what is normal, but but you know what I mean. Um, and I guess that was the point when I realised that if I didn't make some changes, it wouldn't change. And so that's kind of where it came from. And there was a lot, a lot of stuff going on in my head in any case, you know, sort of mental health wise, which I don't really want to go into purely because everyone talks about mental health these days and I'm not trying to say anything about it, but you know, it is what it is. There were challenges that I was facing and having always loved reading, um, it was a family, <laughs> it was family fun that whenever we went on holiday, there had to be a photograph of me reading a book because apparently that's all I did. I always had my head in a book. So it was like, you know, cause in those days you had to get your photos sent off and printed. So yeah, there's always in the family photo albums, every holiday, there's me sitting there reading a book. So it, it kind of, the, the two things then combined because I thought I've got all this stuff in my head that I don't know what to do with, which had been exacerbated by all of the different things that happened over the years. So, I kind of decided that I would start writing it down, but I never thought I would be able to write a book. Number of reasons, but one of the main reasons is that I read books in a very weird way. So I read the beginning of a book and if I really like it and I'm really into it, then I read the end to make sure that it ends how I want it to end. And then I go back and read the middle. So I kind of thought, I'm not going to be able to write because I'm going to write the beginning. I can write this killer beginning. It's going to be great. And then at the end, I can, you know, they can all die and it's going to be whatever. But I'm going to get bored in the middle because I can't be bothered to write this bit in the middle. And that's what I genuinely thought. So this particular day, it wasn't on that day. That was the start of it. So it was it was a few weeks or whatever down the road. I just got the laptop out and thought, I'm just going to dump some stuff and see what happens. Um, so I wrote 6,000 words that day. And I was like, okay. That's interesting. So I did it the next day and the next day and the next day. And I wrote a book. And then I kind of went, oh, okay, maybe I can write a book. And, and that book is, is not in publication. I still have it. It's always going to be dear to my heart, but it's like anything. It's like the first pancake, you know, it's never the best thing that you kind of create. Um, but it gave me the belief that I could actually do this and have the patience to do it. At that point, it wasn't going to be a career for me, but it was a creative outlet. And I started to feel like I had a bit of me back. That's lovely. Uh, 
you're a nightmare reading <laughs> I I have a hundred page full which is if it doesn't grab me in a hundred pages and I put it down but I wouldn't I would I would be quite upset if I knew what was gonna happen I think did I you, so you still bothered to go back and read the middle even though yeah, you, you know, and do you know what the worst thing is so when I was growing up um I read all sorts of different things but my main genre okay this is quite embarrassing but it's true I read a lot of Mills and Boone books. Now, anyone that's read Mills and Boone knows that the plot is always exactly the same. So I did not gain anything from reading the end of each book, but I I still did it. I still went and read the end of every single Mills and Boone book before I read the middle. What's that all about? <laughs> so, so we've got we've had the toilet brush moment. Yes. We've had a go at writing the first book. Mm-hmm. We now know, well, you now know you can do it. What happens next? Was, was there the, the first proper book then? No, there was, there was a bit of a journey. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd written this book, but I didn't know if it was any good. I, did, I just had no idea. So I can't remember the sequence of events exactly, but I ended up in a kind of online book group critique sort of thing. And um, there was a lady in the group who was an editor and she, she offered to look at this book and, and edit it for me. And I was so green. It's ridiculous. I was so green. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. This person really wants to help. And she did. But unfortunately, the, the net result of that, which took about 18 months and the group, was that it got pulled apart so much that I completely lost that passion that I'd had for it and that feeling that I'd had because I don't feel any ill will towards because it it was all done with the best intentions but I think because I hadn't engaged any kind of professional help it was just people's opinions and because I was so green I was listening to every single person's opinion and so when somebody said oh I don't like this bit or I I think you should I was like okay right I'm going to change it I'm going to change it and as I said, it was about 18 months and this book that I'd kind of just dumped everything into became a shadow of what it was. But it was an incredible learning experience, um, you know, for a, a number of different reasons, which I'm sure we'll, we'll perhaps come on to shortly. But what that then meant was I had a period of time where I didn't write. Um, I lost my confidence. I lost all of the excitement that I'd had. It just it just went And then I saw an advert for the Writers Bureau um, and they were doing, or they continue to do, um, online courses. And it was an online creative writing course. And I thought, that's a lot of money. I'm denied, but I gave it a go. And that was the turning point for me because when I started that course, I started working with professionals. And I was assigned, um, as these courses are, you do a, a module and then it goes to somebody to, to market and give you feedback and stuff. And I was assigned this incredible lady who just got me from day one. She knew, she understood me, she understood how I wrote, and she really built my confidence back up. And, and that course went from writing a paragraph to kind of planning and writing your novel, and it included nonfiction as well. And I got through the whole of that course with... I'm not saying it was perfect, but I had the right support. I had the right advice. And it led to me being published in Woman's Own and Wiltshire Life and various other things that I never would have considered possible. 
and that's really where my proper writing journey if you like began and it's it's interesting isn't it so from from there to what you do today I think the experience that you went through in that group probably sowed the seeds for what you do today I think but we'll, we'll find out so what <laughs> made you go from being a part-time author to launching what you have today which is a book company it was an accident I would like to say it was all planned but it really wasn't and and actually I think on reflection sometimes the best things happen by accident and I'd always kind of harbored this idea of having my own company, but I didn't know what that was going to look like. And again, if we go back to the sort of writing scenario, I didn't think I could. I was like, well, who am I to run a company? I don't know the first thing about it. You know, it just, the whole thing just seemed something that was, again, other people did it. So after about 15 years of being at home uh, with my boys, I realized, sorry, excuse me, that I needed... I needed an identity beyond what I currently had. So we were able to put the right care in place and I went back to full-time work. I went back into insurance and I went into um, two very different jobs, but they weren't quite right. I didn't fit. And, And I hold my hands up as being the person that didn't fit because I think because of all of the different experiences I'd had, from that gap that I'd had wasn't just me kind of sitting there watching Jeremy Kyle all day or even though that's not on anymore but it was it was a life experience and I think I saw things in a very different way to a lot of people in the corporate world and it was a bit of a recipe for disaster so the last um, you know kind of the last the last job it just didn't work out and in the end I realized that I was never going to be fulfilled working for somebody else. Not for anybody else's fault, but purely because I had too much that I felt I wanted to give that I wasn't able to give. Um, It actually didn't end terribly well with that company. Um, I ended up walking out, which is not something that I would advocate, but it, it had got to the point where I just could not, I couldn't be there anymore. Um, So I walked out, got home, and this was a very well-paid job. (laughs) I got home and went, oops, I now don't have any income. (laughs) Um, And this had kind of, I think everything just aligned, really, because, like I said, in the back of my mind, I wanted to have a company. I wanted to be my own boss. Um, I also knew that I loved writing. I knew that I'd figured out the process for myself, which is hard work. And I'd also helped a friend who is dyslexic to completely read, you know, kind of like we pulled her book apart, we put it back together again. And, you know, she self-published her book. And it was just such an incredible moment because she actually stood at her launch and said, I couldn't have done this without you. So all of those things kind of came together for me to go, right, okay, well, I'm here. I don't have any income. What's the worst that can happen? So... Beginner book was born and I have not looked back. That's brilliant. That's cool. And so I'm going to ask you a question now, which a lot of people struggle with. What problem do you think that your company solves for people? So it really is about helping people, which sounds really silly, but I wish when I'd started writing, I wish I'd known me because what we do at Beginner Book is we look after the author. 
Now, what that does, I'm very, very passionate about it being the author's work and the author's words. I want to have anybody that's ever wanted to or had the passion or the interest in writing a book and had the same thought process as me, oh, that's something other people do. Oh, I can't afford to do it. Oh, it's too complicated. Those are the people that I want to show. No, it can be done. And the beauty of, of the way that I have set up Beginner Book is that we can help everybody with everything. So you don't have to go anywhere else. Now that's not a sales pitch. If people want to go somewhere else for their cover design or their editing or whatever, they're more than welcome to, you know, they can just take from us what they need. But we nurture that author from day one, from wherever they are until they get to where they want to be. For most authors, that's self-publishing and holding the finished book in their hand. And it is such an emotional process. I cry every single time one of the books gets, gets published because I know what it takes. I know how much time and how much of yourself you put into the process, even a nonfiction book, you know, even if you're writing about your business, it's still you, it's still part of you. That's what my company does. That's what we do is we, we make sure that those authors' words and their story is told in the way they want it told without any of this kind of, no, we're going to change this and we're going to change. Of course, yes, there's editing. Of course, there's all the different bits that we need to do with it. But it's always, always the author's voice. And that's what's really, really important to me. And do you think everyone should write a book? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so there's this thing, and I don't even know where it came from, that there's a book in everybody. Yeah, arguably there is. We've all got stories. Um, you know, you, I'm sure, the same as me, we meet so many incredible people and, and the stories that they tell us, they're just beyond comprehension sometimes. But I think, and this is just my personal opinion, to write a book, you have to have passion. And if you don't have that, if you don't have the passion for the subject matter, I don't think you can write an authentic book. And I hate the word authentic because it's one of those that's everywhere. But for me, if it's something that you've always wanted to do, if like me, you read Enid Blyton and hid it under your duvet as a little girl because you, know, you didn't want your mum and dad to know you were reading in the middle of the night and it's kind of followed you through and you've read lots of dodgy mills and boom books and all of those kind of stuff, those are the people that should write a book. I don't believe that you should write a book because it's the in thing to do or because it's trendy or because your business coach told you to do it. If you want to write a book, absolutely, everyone can write a book. And one of the reasons why I do what I do is to make it accessible to as many people as I possibly can. You know, I don't want people to be English majors or be able to quote Shakespeare inside out and back to front. I'm just interested in their voice. That's all I'm interested in, because if you can hold a conversation, you can write a book. You just need the right support. So, no. Very long answer to your short question. I don't think everybody should write a book. I think you should write a book if you have the correct motivation for it. And for me, it's the passion. No, I love that. And I think that that is an authentic answer using that word. You know, a lot of people talk about a book today being a business card. And I love that attitude that you've got to it. You know, if you haven't got a message that you want to get out there, you're passionate about, it will come through, I think, in terms of on the page, probably won't get finished. I don't know, I could see all sorts of things, but I, I think that's a real answer. Great. Okay. Now let's say we 
we are someone who is passionate about something. We have a message that we want to get out into the world and we want to do a book to share that with people. Yeah. What are the three big traps that you see people fall into on the book creation journey? There are more than three, obviously, but I think the top three, first one is people don't think they need an editor. To be clear, editing costs money. It is probably the most expensive part of the book writing process because editors, professional editors charge per word. And so it can, if you're like me and you write 140,000 words in a book, it, it costs a lot of money. But that is the expense that you need to invest because if you're serious about it and you're ser- if you're serious about the book and you want to, to give it the justice that it deserves, you have to have it edited. And it's interesting because I do meet people who say, oh yeah, but I'm really good at English and I, I, I can spot spelling mistakes and I can you know, run it through this piece of software. And yeah, great, you can do all of those things. And I would never discourage that but you cannot beat somebody looking at it with a fresh pair of eyes, with their expertise and kind of going, okay, this isn't really hitting the market or do you think you could make that a bit more concise or whatever the feedback is from the editor. So that's the number one. Yes, it costs money, but I genuinely believe that you shouldn't put a book out there unless you've had it professionally edited. And in fact, might be the wrong thing to say, but I won't work with authors who are not prepared to have their books edited, whether it be through us or whether it be through their own editor. Um, So that's the first one. The second one, overcomplicating it. It really isn't that difficult. Sometimes people think that they need to fill their book with big words and, and lots of characters or, you know, lots of, I don't know, scientific experiments to make it sound really great. You don't. Actually, you just need to keep it really simple. Obviously, yes, if you're writing a book that needs to have some twists and turns to kind of keep the reader interested. But again, you don't need to overcomplicate it. All that happens is you get frustrated because you've lost the plot, for want of a better phrase. And you get frustrated and the book never gets finished. And that's really, really sad. I always say to my authors, we can add stuff in, we can take stuff out. I'm not bothered about that at this point in time. Just give me your story. Let's just put your story out there. Whatever's in in your heart, in your soul or whatever, that's what we want. And then the third one is, again, an obvious one, cover design. People that don't take cover design seriously. And that frustrates me, actually, because some people will write an incredible book and they will put the worst cover ever on it. And unfortunately, the cover is what engages people. Because, you know, if you think about it, particularly digitally, but even in bookshops, it's the very first thing you see, the front cover. And if you see a front cover that looks like it's kind of just been thrown together with a bit of clip art or something, I apologise, nothing wrong with clip art, but it shouldn't be on a book cover, in my opinion. Nobody's going to pick that up. And if you've gone to the trouble of of pouring your heart and soul into that work and you've had it edited and you've made it as best as it possibly can be, give it a really, really good cover. Again, it costs, but it's absolutely worth it. Cool. I wish I'd I'd met you when I wrote my two books. I think I'm going to add something in here, if you don't mind, and get your view on it. So we had a laugh. I don't know if you can remember when I showed you my book. 
Now, my big, <laughs> my biggest audience for the work that I do is in America, and I called my book Cracking Speech Mate, which is fine if it's a British audience, matter at a push, an Australian audience, but does not resonate at all. And it's it's got great stuff in it, but that's a that's a bit of a handicap for the book. So I think getting some outside perspective on things like that and challenging things like that yeah. where it tips over from the story into the marketing if you like and because yeah, you know absolutely. we want to get the book out there <laughs> and into people's hands especially if you've got a message you want it to reach people yeah. it's just like when i talk about starting your talk or the title of your talk if people don't attend your talk they're not going to hear your message and this is the same thing isn't it and the cover as well Absolutely. And and I always start at the end of the process. I've got this thing about endings. I don't really understand why that is. But <laughs> whenever a new client comes to me, we always start at the end of the process. And the conversation is, what do you want that book to achieve? Absolutely. Because then we can design the process to get you there to the best of our ability. You know, if you if you're looking for a book that is going to be a family heirloom that you're going to hand down over generations and you know, it doesn't necessarily need to go on Amazon because it's something that we're just going to have printed and made beautiful. If you've got a business book, you've maybe got a specific market, like you said. So if you'd come to me <laughs> with your title and said, my audience is in America, I might have gone, okay, perhaps we'll have a think about that. You know, because that's, <laughs> <Very that's tough. laughs> because that's, you know, that's really what we have to, we have to know where you see it because then we can, we can pitch it right and we, yeah. can, we can do our best to hit that audience. The audience kind of has to come all the way through the book. It's not just at the end, great, I've written this book, now I'm going to give it to whoever. That has to be present in the whole of the story because you'll be found out. If your yeah. audience pick up that book and, I don't know, say you've decided that you're going to tell them how to do brain surgery and you've just watched a video on YouTube, are the videos on YouTube of brain surgery? I, I, do you know what? I, I don't even want to know. Now we've, we've got a new niche there. We should get on that. Yeah. Um, you know, you're saying, yes, I'm going to put this out to surgeons. They're going to know that you haven't got a clue. And so it's so important to consider your audience all the way through your book. We do the same thing in a different medium. But even though we do the same thing, your expertise and my expertise, they're similar but completely different. I always am the same as you think about your audience first yeah. and foremost yeah. and, and also which audience and, and all that good stuff. Okay. Thank you for sharing those traps. Now on the flip side, I mean, it yes. may be just the opposite of what we've talked about, but what are the three things that you wish you'd known before you wrote and published your first book? Again, there's loads. I'm actually going to go with three slightly different things because then I can get kind of six messages out there, if that makes sense. So I think one of the biggest things for me was, and I alluded to this earlier, is not to believe everybody's opinion. When you write a book, oh my goodness, it's amazing how many people are experts at writing books. It's amazing how many people suddenly need to tell you how to do it. And like I said earlier, I kind of fell for that. And although it was a massively valuable learning experience, it was also really painful and it was really hard. I wish I'd followed my gut more and I wish I'd just gone, this feels okay to me, so I'm going to go with it. Not saying it was perfect or right by any stretch, but I kind of wish I'd gone, no, 
you know, been able to have the confidence to stand my ground and not take on board what everybody else thought I needed to know. One of the common pitfalls, and I also fell down <laughs> this hole. So this is the other thing, you see, beginner book stops you falling down holes, hopefully, because uh, I've fallen down more. Um, there's a lot of people that will offer to help you in a professional capacity and will charge you very nice sums of money and actually deliver very little. That can be difficult to, to know who, who, who you can and can't trust. But I think the key message for me, which I wish I'd known, <laughs> is there isn't a magic sales formula. You just have to know your market and then market, market and market. It doesn't matter how much money you give to somebody that tells you they're going to get you into the top 10 bestseller lists or whatever. If your book doesn't resonate with your readers, if it doesn't resonate with your target audience, unless that person is going to buy tons of your book and then do whatever with it, there isn't a formula. You just have to know your audience. You have to know who you're writing for and you have to get into their mind. And then you just have to put it in front of them again and again and again and again. So that's something that I wish I'd known. And then the other one. Okay, so I am everybody's best customer to my detriment. I wish I'd realized that I did not need to buy every single course <laughs> that was out there. <laughs> yeah, I bought a lot of courses. I spent a lot of money. I mean, the Writers Bureau, obviously, that, you know, 100%. So I think, again, go with your gut. If you work with a good editor at the end of the process, a lot of the areas of concern can be ironed out. You know, because an editor doesn't just check that you've spelt things correctly. An editor will look at the whole structure of the book. They'll look at the construct. They'll look at the characters if it's a fiction book. So just go with the things that you have a gut feeling you're going to need and try not to spend too much money on courses that you don't necessarily need. That's kind of, I guess, the three things I wish I'd realised. Oh, no, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, um, here's a question. So I, I've asked some of my audience for some questions for you. And uh, one of the first ones that came up, and I'm sure you've had this question before, what's better, self-publishing or working with a publishing company? Yes, I get asked this probably on a daily basis. Um, and first of all, I have to say, I have never worked directly with a publishing company, so I'm not qualified to comment on that experience per se. However, I have worked with a number of authors who have been with a traditional publishing company, and I also know people in the industry. Um, so I kind of have a bit of a flavor for it. I think it's what, the, I don't think there's any better as such, it's what's right for you. And for me, it comes right back to that, where do you see your book? There is a misconception that if you are able to secure a publishing deal, that you will then become a bestseller. Unfortunately, the days of that being a guaranteed um, outcome are, are gone. What tends to happen now with a traditional publisher is that they will still look to the author to do the marketing. They will still look to the author to put the legwork in. Yes, you will get an advance if you get a deal, which is great, but you won't earn anything until that advance has been paid back. So if, I don't know, for argument's sake, they've said, oh, we're going to give you £100,000 for four books or something. 
great, fantastic. But actually what you need to remember is that your books have to earn £100,000 before you're going to then earn anything else. So there are a number of things that I guess that you have to be cautious of with the traditional publishing journey. It can take a long time. Some publishers will only accept submissions from agents. So you will need to go an agent first, and then you will need to get the publisher. If you have an agent and a publisher, that's two lots of people that are going to take a percentage of your um, royalties. Some uh, publishers will absolutely, um, you know, take what we call unsolicited manuscripts. So that's manuscripts from people who don't have an agent. What you have to look out for is what they're guaranteeing that they're going to do for you. Where are they putting that book? Are they going to say, yes, it's going to sit on Sainsbury's shelf. It's going to sit in Waterstones or whatever, because that's the key. With self-publishing, you can get your book so widely distributed now that the main differentiation between the two is those big, basically high street stores. Other than that, there isn't a huge differentiation. If you've got a publisher who is actively promoting your book and they've done you a launch and all of these kind of things, then that's great, you know, and as long as you're aware of, of all of that and that that's what they're doing, then I would say absolutely go for it. But you do need to bear in mind it's going to take a long time. It can take years. It's not, you know, months, it's years. You will more often than not lose creative control because the publisher will sign um, the rights to themselves, which means they can then sell the rights wherever they choose to. So you are going to be much more restricted on what you want to do with that book going forwards um, because it will become effectively somebody else's property. With self-publishing, it really is a completely different journey. Yes, you do it yourself because it's called self-publishing. It's come on a lot. I am the first to admit that when self-publishing first kind of hit the market, as it were, there were some really terrible books out there. And there still are. Because, you know, it, it's opened up this platform for anybody and everybody to publish a book. So whilst that's brilliant, it's also quite, you know, it can be quite bad as well. It had a very, very bad reputation. The reputation is getting better now. There are a huge number of very well-known and very well-respected authors who have come from traditional publishing to self-publishing primarily because they wanted to keep their own creative control. Um, they wanted to be able to sell their rights where they sell them. They wanted to maintain the title. They wanted to keep the characters as they were or, or whatever it might be. Self-publishing gives you the chance to see your name on the cover within a reasonable period of time. You don't have to wait years. It's accessible to everybody and you can do it completely yourself. You can work with people like me. You can do a mix of both. Um, the, you know, there's, there's so many avenues. With self-publishing, you don't have the opportunity to have that shelf space in the big retailers. For some authors, that can be a downside. And there still is a, a, an amount of kudos applied to, wow, I've got a publishing deal, um, you know, because it sounds really good. I always say to my authors, if you get one, I'm going to be there cheering from the rooftops. You know, that's, I'm not going to say anything against it. But I think what, what people don't necessarily understand is that you can achieve just as much with self-publishing. You just go about it in a slightly different way. 
primarily it's online distribution. Um, and at beginner, but we use two different distributors. We use a company called Ingram Spark and we use um, Amazon, obviously. The reason we do that is because that gives our authors the widest possible distribution. So although we can't put them into Waterstones, we can put them on Waterstones website. And that's really clever because the average person won't distinguish between being in the Waterstones bookshop and being on Waterstones website. It also means that, you know, somebody could walk into Waterstones and order your book because it's on the website. So you can build that kind of kudos, if you like, into your self-publishing journey. You just have to know how to do it. But the caveat is, as I said before, you must have it edited because unfortunately the self-publishing industry is going to continue to have its bad name if authors continue to throw substandard works and substandard covers out there. You know, when you go through a traditional publisher, you've got that checking process. It goes through their editing, it goes through their graphic design, it goes through all of their different things. You know that by the time it comes out the other end, it's going to be a piece of work that you can be very, very proud of. That's the caveat I would say with self-publishing is I absolutely advocate it. I think it's fantastic, but you must do it properly. Thank you for that. That's a really that's a really comprehensive answer. I did get my books edited, so that's a, a, a bit of a tick, even though the title's rubbish and probably the cover's a bit dodgy as well. But anyway, moving on, <laughs> uh, we can we can always learn. Um, <laughs> oh, I learn every day. <laughs> uh, exactly. Next question: If you're talking about real life situations, should you change the names of the characters or ask for permission, or do you not have to bother doing any of that? <laughs> so. Okay, if you're going to use real life people, you must ask for permission, unless you want to be sued or done for libel or defamation or anything like that. Now, it very much depends on why you're using them. Because I would advocate if you're writing a fiction book, you don't need to use real people. You can Obviously, well, in fact, we all do. We base our characters on people we know because that's where we get our reference points from. But I would always avoid naming those people and I would always change something subtly so that you can have complete creative control without worrying that you're going to trip yourself up and upset somebody. Obviously, at the beginning of a book, you will always put, and again, this is part of what we do, we always put the copyright information and we always qualify whether or not it's a fiction book and therefore there's um, you know, no references to individuals and blah, blah, blah. I can't remember the exact wording, but that always goes in the front of the book. And with a non-fiction book, we always put the wording um, around the fact that you know this is a, a guide, it's not meant to be replaced professionally, it's whatever. So I would never, ever unless you've got express permission and there's a good reason to do it, use real people. Real people get used in nonfiction, and I think that works better. So say, for example, you're part of a case study and um, I don't know, they, they ask you if you're happy for your results to be published then yeah, absolutely, you know, this would be great. Sarah Archer, this is her, yeah, this was her experience. Brilliant, thanks very much. But you should always ask, you should never, ever, ever put anybody in a book without asking them first. And you have to be careful with quotes, celebrities, anything like that as well. 
because the chances of somebody, you know, a celebrity reading your book, I mean, how great would that be? But if they read the book and realised that you've kind of written something really unpleasant about them, you could be in a, a bit of hot water. What about if you're writing a memoir and, you know, it was about your life? Would you, you is the best course of action just get permission or, or yeah, could so you that, write about them without their name? You can. I kind of call it fictionalising reality. It depends on your subject matter. Every Everybody is different. A lot of people that I work with have, um, you know, some experiences in their past that they want to share the message from but they don't necessarily want to replicate it in its kind of like true form. The best way to do that is to use a different name. Two reasons for that. One is it protects yourself. And I don't mean just call somebody something else, but give them the exact same physical appearance. You have to change, you know, you have to change, make some changes subtly. Um, but the other reason is it will help you to write it objectively. And I know that kind of sounds a bit strange, but I'll give you an example. I've got a lady that I'm working with who is writing, um, it's a fiction novel, but it's based on her family history and her family background. Um, and she had this one character, and I think he was called George. I get confused as to which way around it was. But George was the person that she based it. So this George was a real person. She based George on this person. And we were working and she said, oh, she said I can't do that because George wouldn't have done that. And I said, okay. I said, but we need whatever it was, we need that element because that's what the reader's going to be looking for. Yeah, I know, but he wouldn't have done that. So we kind of wrestled with this and I said, right, here's an idea. Let's call him something else. Let's call him Arthur. The second we called him Arthur, it opened up her creativity because he wasn't George anymore. So she still gets to tell his story, but she can tell it without being attached to it without having all those emotions and everything else that sometimes can make it really hard and really challenging. So actually taking that step back and removing the real people can be a good exercise for the writer because what you're looking to do, particularly if you're producing something like memoirs, is you're looking to tell your story, you're looking to engage a reader, but actually you're also looking for like a cathartic process and you can't achieve that if you're getting bogged down with George wouldn't do that he might not have done that but Arthur will so that's okay we can kind of move him on um but it does vary it, it very much depends and it's a conversation that I have with all of my authors depending on what their needs are and if there is a need for people to be featured in the book then yeah absolutely get permission and make sure that you put, you know, in the front matter of the book that they have been asked and they are happy for their, you know, names, etc., to appear. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And so in terms of quotes in books, a similar sort of thing, reference, yeah, now, give credit for sure. Yeah. yeah, now, so quotes is a different... So, again, it's very different between fiction and non-fiction. Um, non-fiction, obviously, you're going to reference and quote all of the time because that's the nature of the beast. So, yes, make sure you're categorising it, make sure you're referencing, make sure you've got bibliography, all of the things that you need to say that you have quoted this. Um, and you also need to present it in a way that it's obvious it's a quote. Um, more often than not, people will put it in italics, perhaps in speech marks, and you put the little numbers after it and, and so on. Fiction books are slightly different. Now, copyright is a nightmare. And 
I don't profess to be an expert in any way, shape or form. Once you write the first word of your book, you own the copyright to that. You cannot copyright a title. So for example, your book that you obviously gave that great title to, if I wanted to write a book with that title, I can do that. It doesn't matter that you've done that. I can call my book the same. But I basically cannot... you wouldn't know, but would you? <laughs> would not, no. <laughs> but what I cannot do is I cannot use your content. I might want to quote your content. Now, in fiction, if you want to quote content, you should get permission. A lot of authors will use song lyrics. They'll use the name of bands. They'll use um, poems sometimes and, and, and things like that. Copyright does not disappear until the author has been dead for 70 years. So you can quote Shakespeare without a problem. You can quote Jane Austen without a problem. But if I wanted to quote a song that you'd written, I would need to get your, even if I wanted to put your lyrics in, even if the lyrics were, you know, I love you, which is probably in every single song that was ever written. But because I'm saying, you know, this is, this song was, I've been at a Sarah Archer concert and she's written this song, but I would have to get your permission. That can be time consuming and costly. So the general advice is get permission or don't use it or change it. So, you know, I could create Sarah Archer, but I could call her something else and I could base her roughly on your song and I could make up my lyrics. That's fine. So you just have to be really careful with it. Cool, that's really helpful. Okay, so we've talked about publishing, self-publishing. Both of those things have the author promoting the book. Have you got any tips about the best ways to promote your book once you have it in your hands? The best way, if you're self-publishing, I can't really comment on traditional publishing because, as I say, I haven't been down a marketing route with them, but if you're self-publishing, the best way to promote your book is actually to do an event. So if it's a non-fiction book, for example, you might go to the audience that you've, um, you know, that you've written it for. And you might say, right, I'm going to do a speech. I'm going to do a you know, presentation and I'm going to take my book along. Fiction, um, you might go to writing clubs. You might go to the library and do a book signing. You might go to bookshops and do a book signing. Anywhere that you've got a captive audience is always a brilliant way to promote and sell your book. Because we've all been there. You go along to an event and you feel like you can't really leave without buying the book. <laughs> that sounds really awful but actually if you if you've got a product and a book that you're really really proud of why wouldn't you want to have a captive audience why wouldn't you want to sell it so I always say to my authors think about who you're wanting to get the books into the hand into you know into their hands where can you go that those people will be and you have to be there because you have to tell your story because people have to buy into that which is very similar to well that's basically you know kind of where you come in the other thing is there is a huge market out there in independent bookshops, in uh, gift shops, in garden centres, any shops that aren't affiliated to one of the big publishers, you can absolutely approach and ask if they will carry your book. And again, if they're happy to do that, you do a book signing, you do some, you know, some big fanfare, you do a launch, you do 
whatever, you have to get yourself out there. You can't, unfortunately, just sit at home, put it on Amazon and expect it to kind of happen. If it does, brilliant. But you do have to put yourself out there. Absolutely, which is a nice segue into my next question. Around yourself, do you use speaking to promote your books or your business? So I have done um, in the past. My most successful event was a WI event. Um, and I kind of went along thinking, oh, there might be very many people there. Oh, my gosh, the room was packed. It was really embarrassing because I was so hot. I was sweating buckets. It was just like, and you know when you want, I, I'm quite good in front of an audience, but you know when you kind of want the ground to swallow you up because you're like, oh, my God, everything's, you know, dripping. It was really unpleasant. It was it was very horrible. And then when I was signing books at the end, I was just conscious that my hand was just so, it was, yeah, because this room was packed. Um, so, yes, I tend to tell my story at those events um very similar to what we've covered today i also do now more so than anything else um a lot of networking and a lot of that is around how you're able to use speaking to portray yourself and your story i also run have run and will be running going forward courses so looking at helping and supporting people on a kind of like a course basis rather than just sort of on a one-to-one -one basis. Um, but I think what you do is, is so invaluable because you help those of us that don't have the confidence, don't have the understanding, don't have the knowledge of where to go to get our voice out there. And that's what people buy. You know, you could write the best book in the world, but if you haven't got any personality if you haven't got any passion if you haven't got any engagement people aren't going to buy from you and that's where what you do is so key because it kind of it it closes that gap between the physical product that I've helped people to produce and the sale if you like or the end message so yeah I actually love <clears throat> working with authors because and it, I'm working with an author at the moment who's doing a talk but it's you know you can't put the whole book into a talk so you have to be really selective. You know, you have to do a version of the story that shows the transformation, but then also for your audience proactively tackles their objections to get those out of the way to buying the book or buying whatever it is. I mean, it's the same thing, whether it's a book you're selling or a service or whatever, but I love what you do. And I, that's why I wanted to get you on the show because I think they're both valuable, but they very much work well together. You know, a great yeah, talk absolutely. and a great book. So yeah. cool. Brilliant. Right. I've got some standard questions that I want to ask you before we switch to find out where people can find out, you know, get more info about working with you and what you do and so on. So first question is, what's the best thing that speaking has done for you? It gave me confidence in who I am. And my, and I will give you an example. When I launched the book that I ended up actually publishing, forget the first one, this was book three or four. This was in 2017. And I decided that I was going to have a launch party. Now, my reason for having a launch party was because I was really proud of myself. It was that simple. I didn't, my goal was to have one person I didn't know read the book and like it. That was it. I didn't have any lofty expectations. So this event was really just a celebration of me going, 
like, oh, blimey, that was hard work. But I got there in the end and I'm really proud of myself. And look, here it is. And there's my name on the cover. So I went to the venue and the lady said to me, oh, how many people are you thinking will come along? I said, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe, you know, we're not talking many. Okay, great. We had almost 70 people, which was a bit of a problem because we didn't have 70 chairs. <laughs> um, the room, again, I seem to have a theme about endings and sweating. The room was really small. There was lots of people in it. It was very hot. But because I was then faced with this room of 70 people, I was like, okay, I have to speak to these people. I have to talk to these people. It was the most nerve wracking moment. But I did it. And at the end, when, I mean, you know, forget the fact that these 70 people had turned up in the first place, which was just mind blowing. But when they were kind of like clapping me and congratulating me, and I went, wow, okay. Being able to tell that story, you know, in the way that I was able to tell it and, and able to use it, wow. And that just gave me the confidence, really, to keep pushing forwards. That's brilliant. Now we may have covered off question number two already. I don't know. Have you had a speaking gig where you've just been like, oh my goodness, that was, I just want to wipe that from my memory and never think about it ever again. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, to be actually, yes, this, this tends to happen at, quite often in networking events. And, and again, a lot of these are online now, but this, this did happen in, in kind of face to face is, because I'm very passionate about what I do. I use my hands a lot. So there's a lot of this, I know the listeners can't see, but I'm doing lots of gesturing. Um, so there's kind of all of this stuff going on. And there is that moment, and I'm sure you coach this for people, there's that moment when you realise you need to say something, but actually you didn't need to say anything, but you do. And so you fill the silence that you didn't need to fill. And then you just kind of go, and then you're digging a hole and it's digging deeper and deeper and deeper. And deeper. And then you've lost your audience. And that happened at a networking event. And um, it's awful because you're trying to say more to get yourself out of the hole that you've dug yourself into, but actually you're just making it worse. And there's this voice inside going, just shut up, just sit down, just shut up. But you don't because you're like, no, 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 I need to get my message across. I need to get my message across. Oh yeah. The irony is really, and again, I'm sure you probably see this, is, is we perceive that situation as, as way worse than it actually was. You know, I don't think most people noticed. But I... <laughs> oh, no. I talk often when I'm coaching people about the creator and the critic and leaving the critic at the side of the stage and making sure you have different spaces for writing your content, you know, the talk and, and reviewing. And I'm sure you have a similar thing with your authors, but yeah, those critics, when they come on stage with you, a blooming nightmare. So we need to kick them into touch. That's fascinating. Okay. This is going to be a challenge for you. I think what's the book that's had most impact on your life and why? Oh no, that's not a challenge. That's really easy. Oh, good. <laughs> Um, so it is, it, it's a play actually, rather than a book, um, An Inspector Calls by J.B. Priestley. Uh -huh. And I read it at school and it was the first, so I would have been, I don't know, 13, 14, maybe, I don't know. It was the first time I realised how powerful writing could be because it's just such an incredible play. And 
you read it and and you're kind of like you're into it and basically there's there's been a murder and the, the police officer comes to the to the house where all these rich people are having dinner and he starts questioning them all and they all start to realize that they knew this person and and all of their kind of like hidden secrets if you like come out but there's an incredible twist at the end where this inspector that's what it's called an inspector calls this inspector then figures out who's done it and and off he goes they're all then reeling in the aftermath and this is set in the i don't know 20s 30s or whatever they're all sort of reeling in the aftermath and there's a knock at the door and it is an actual police inspector and it ends there because it's like so who was that bloke that's just spent hours in our house and pulled all of those secrets out of us because he clearly wasn't the inspector, but because they believed he was the inspector and they kind of pulled their hearts out to him. I mean, I've kind of paraphrased it in a terrible way, but it's just an incredible, for me, it was an incredible moment where I went, oh my gosh. And that has stayed with me. And I've read many brilliant books and I will continue to read many, many brilliant books. But that was the one where I went, wow, there's something in that. I love that being a playwright, I love the fact that you, a play is, has had that much impact on you. That's, that's fabulous. Cool. Um, okay. What's the best bit of business advice you've had and why? Oh, gosh. Do you know what? Be yourself. Don't be afraid to be yourself. That is the best piece of business advice I've had. I think... You know, I'm a, when I started the company, I knew nothing. I still don't know a fat lot more, but I really knew nothing. And I knew that I needed, I knew that I could do the kind of writing-y, creative-y bit, but the business, not a clue. So I knew that I had to get somebody on board that could help steer the ship. That sounds really cliche. I can't believe I said that. So I got myself a business coach really, really early on. And that was probably the best thing I ever did because it meant that I had somebody there that could say, okay, this is how a business works. This is what you need to do, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and really that enabled me to be myself because I, because that was very much his advice. Just be you, be who you are, turn up, show the passion, show the enthusiasm. It doesn't matter if you don't have all of the answers. No one's got all of the answers. You know, all of those things you can build on. Just be who you are, be true to yourself, true to your business and true to your values. And I have surprised myself in how many times I have stuck to my values and my ethos um, when I know I probably would have previously crumbled, but I just go, no, this is me. This is the business. This is what it's about. And so, yeah, be yourself. Brilliant sage advice uh, to keep you on the right path. Definitely love that. Okay, last question. Okay, if you could have any mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Oh my word! Gosh. Okay, if I could have any mentor, see, I'm going to go really left field here because that wouldn't be me if I didn't. I'm going to go Joe Root, who most people probably haven't even heard of. England cricket captain. <laughs> now, see, I told you, he's a test cricket captain. Now, you could argue that's a really bad choice because the test cricket team aren't doing very well, but there's just something about him. I've had a bit of a crush on him for a very long time, and he knows what he's doing. 
in cricket, I don't, well, he has written a book, although he probably didn't write it. But no, I, I just think, yeah, <laughs> I would just quite happily spend a few hours listening to his. Um, and he's younger than me, which is wrong in all sorts of ways. <laughs> I told you it was left field. <laughs> so what do you, what do you think that he would he would be able how would he mentor so you? I think do you know what one of the skills and I'm I'm guessing but one of the skills that I think he has to have is being able to maintain an equilibrium across a team of people. I can be a little bit hot-headed sometimes and I can kind of get a little bit precious. I'm working on that. But I think having somebody like him who who's used to handling really kind of challenging characters and understanding how to get the best out of people and how to support people in a positive way without bringing them down that's something that I would really kind of take value from and he just comes across as being himself and and I have a massive amount of respect for people that are able to stand up and go this is me this is who I am so um yeah, and he could teach my future staff to play cricket as well. So yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe he makes a mean cucumber sandwich. I don't know. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant, Amory. Thank you for that. Okay, thank you so much for everything you've shared today. It's, I'm very, very sure welcome. there's so much value in there for people. You're really going to help them. Um, but if they do want to avoid those pitfalls, accelerate their journey and get that book in their hands in the right way, where can they find more about working with you? Um, So the best place is probably the website, um, which is www.beginabook, so all lowercase, all one word, beginabook.com. Everything's on there. Uh, It is currently having updates done, um, as I think most people's websites all of the time. It's an ongoing process. You can also email me, which is info at beginnerbook.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, it's under my name, so it's under Anne-Marie Winkle. So if you search for Anne-Marie Winkle, you'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, and the thing that I would say is, is if anybody is interested that is listening and kind of wants to know a little bit more about me or about self-publishing or about how we go about it, I've got a PDF, um, which is kind of like my top 10 tips guide to uh, self-publishing which I'm more than happy to email out to anybody that might find that of interest Um, and the other thing is I have um, an information pack which I send out in the post to people which has got just a little bit more information about the company it addresses that thorny traditional versus self-publishing issue it talks about the process um, and, and I always put a couple of goodies in there as well. So if anybody just wants to kind of get their hands on on something that's going to give them a little bit more, you know, because I always I very much believe that you have to make the decision that's right for you. But you can only make that decision if you've got as much information as you can possibly have. So I'm all about providing as much support as I can for people to make the decision, because working with me isn't going to be right for everybody. So I need them to be able to make that decision with as much information as they possibly can. So, yeah, if anybody wants any of those bits and pieces, just either drop me an email or pop onto the website. You can actually get the PDF as a download on the website, and then that will automatically pop you into our system and we can send you an information back. Perfect. And we'll put all those links in the show notes as well. Okay, before we wrap up, is there anything else you feel that you need to say in order to call this show complete? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, too. 
I think, you know, uh, like you said at the beginning, we've we've kind of danced around each other for a while and, and just nev never kind of really actually spent any time together. And, and I think it's been absolutely invaluable. And I, what you do and the platform that you give people like me, um, you know, that's fantastic. So I, I would just say thank you so much and obviously wish you and your business and everybody every, every success going forwards. Thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. Well, that was a value-packed episode. Anne-Marie was so generous with her advice and I just love how passionate she is about what she does and how she doesn't pull her punches with things that are core to her values. I think it's so important that you do get clear on what you're prepared to compromise on and what you're not prepared to compromise on so that your business doesn't stray from where you want it to go from the people that you want to work with from your your sort of values and identity it's it's so important and i hope that that's given you more clarity around whether you should write a book and if you've already started that maybe it helps you get to your destination more quickly do check out beginner book and the free resources that Anne-Marie has there for you. And also, if you're on LinkedIn, do connect with her there and let her know what resonated with you. Well, that's it from me. For those of you that celebrate Easter, I hope you have a great holiday. For those of you that don't, you can just be chuckling at how much weight the rest of us are putting on eating that chocolate. Um, and as ever, if you want some help, putting a talk together, or you want to practice regularly in a safe space, then pop by saraharcher.co.uk and book in to have a chat with me and we can see if I'll be able to help you. Cool. Well, if you are a regular listener and you get value from the show, you know what I'm going to say. Would you mind taking a couple of minutes to leave an honest rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC? And I really appreciate you joining me as ever. Thank you so much. And I will be back next week as ever to give you some more speaking and marketing, aha moments, tools, tips, and inspiration. In the meantime, though, don't just sit around eating all those Easter eggs. Go out, grab your life by the nuts, and get cracking. Bye-bye. If you want to be more memorable and engaging when you talk, then you need to share more stories. Stories can help you better connect with your audience and their problems and get them leaning in more powerfully than anything else. And short, snackable stories are great to use in pitches, Facebook Lives, podcasts, videos, keynotes, webinars, blogs, in fact, everywhere to share your message and grow your business. The trouble is that finding your snackable stories and confidently sharing them can feel like a struggle. And that struggle can slow you down or stop you in your tracks. But that's where my free Snackable Story Challenge comes in. Over the course of just five days, I'm going to give you resources, training and coaching to help you find your authentic personal stories to share and build your skills and confidence in sharing them. Not only that, but the challenge will guide you towards a tangible result at the end and assets for you to use going forward. The next challenge is starting soon. So to grab your space, go to saraharcher.co.uk slash challenge right now.